thank you all. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate you all. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you're doing well. You both look great. Um, and I'm glad that um, you would you would call me. Thank you so much for uh, for keeping me in mind. Oh, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Like, like Brian said, we're always just so happy for you, excited to see how Queen Mothers is growing. And, you know, we're always here to support. And for us, it's just like letting people know the, what's out there, what, you know, Black chefs are doing. I mean, I think it's important. It doesn't get highlighted enough. And also throughout this pandemic, you know, that you've been able to continue your business and keep developing out, I think it's just something that's going to inspire a lot of people in general. So um, it's a story that, you know, we're excited to tell in the magazine. We think a lot of people will be inspired by for sure. Absolutely. And we, we love seeing what you're doing. We see what you're doing. We see that, you know, and there, there are things we, but we want to call out, you know, because we want to make sure that other people don't miss it. You know, like, we're going to get into it. There's a couple of things, but then also like it brings up so many interesting things about, you know, there's some very, very, it, weird thoughts in this country, like around food and culture and, mm. and things like that. And when you really start to look at them, the ways that things, you know, fit together or don't fit together, and you're like, well, you know, why are we, why is it, why is this like just the, the common knowledge? Why is this like the expected outcome when it, none of it makes any sense? So we're going to jump into this interview, find mm. like to the end of these questions and, uh, <laughs> you know, let's, let's start it off. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we always like to go back to the beginning, you know, because, you know, Afro-Chic, how we do, you know, history is always a part of uh, everything we do, whether it's uh, personal history or just, you know, world history. And just in your personal history, we wanted to ask, growing up, like, when you first encountered food, who were the chefs in your family? And how did they use food? You know, like, what role did it play? Growing up, I mean, that's easy. It was my mother and my grandmother, right? Um um, you know, I had some other people, and I think about some aunts and uh, uncle too. Uncle, my grandfather could make a mean batch of potatoes mm -hmm. and uh, fish. But, uh, it, you know, my mother and grandmother were uh, the cooks. And, you know, my mother, I lived with my grandmother for a few years. So I, I experienced that on a regular basis. But my mother was the cook in the house, um, my sister also, my oldest sister, Hawanya, she was a, she still is a really good cook. Um, and, and I always saw food and I, I probably didn't have the language. I know I didn't have the language for it, but it was, you know, it was an opportunity to connect with people. Um, and that's, that's the way, you know, I love people where, where our family's very social and like we, we can talk and we can crack jokes, you know, we played a dozens and right. And then so uh food, it was always an opportunity for us to gather, get together, share, um, you know, share fellowship with one another. Um so that's sort of how um it, it um you know laid the groundwork for me today. Yeah. And I hear that because uh you know I think in my family, you know we thought this was an interesting question because we realized that that food plays a role in a lot of ways we don't necessarily think about. Like I, I've learned from Janine's family, like tea is like the cure all, you know, <laughs> not just for, for like physical illnesses or anything like that. If you've had a bad day, if you just need a, a pick me up, whatever, like they, they will throw tea at it immediately. And I've become a huge tea drinker because I've found out that's, that's wisdom right there. That's good. And like tea will make your day better. And in my mm. family, it's like you said, it was always food was about communication. You know, we had that, that end of the day, you know, dinner table, everybody gathered, like we sat, we talked, we made each other laugh. 
but that was where where we were all together, no matter what else had gone on in the day. And so, the, you know, growing up with that, you know, food was always like sort of this way of talking to each other, you know. And uh, we got to ask, where are you actually from originally? So I was born in Cal- San Diego, California. Hmm. Uh, my dad was a Marine. That's where he, he and my, my mother met. Um, I moved back probably when I was, I think, maybe three years old, I believe. We moved back. My grandfather was ill, so my mom moved to take care of him. And uh, so anyway, we landed in Alexandria, Virginia, essentially. That's where I'm from. A couple stops along the way, (laughs) but Alexandria, Virginia is my hometown. Wow. And you were talking about your mom as, you know, the, the, the person that, you know, kind of brought that food in, in the family. Um, was it Queen Mother's is named for your mom? Is it to honor your mom? It is. It's that's where it starts for me. Right. Queen Mother. She is my queen mother. Um, we called her. We still call her mother, which, you know, growing up around black folks, uh, that, you know, is weird behavior and you get cracked on a lot for that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was listening to, I forget, a radio show yesterday and, you know, we were talking about how it was a black radio show and the, the, the guest was talking about how sometimes we didn't know our parents' real names until later on in life, you know, right. yeah. ain't real name William, but they called him Tony down at the <laughs> hall. And uh, it was very similar with my mom. Uh, where I knew her name, obviously, but a lot of people in my neighborhood and, you know, friends, they didn't know her name. Like, they mm-hmm. just knew her mother. And some people, I think, you know, people just call her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it stuck as a name, but Queen Mother's is um, definitely a, a tribute to her. And also, it's a repositioning uh, ownership of, you know, I'm frying chicken, right? And there's a lot that comes with that, and I'm, I'm all for it. But one of my responsibilities as a black chef is to reframe how we talk about black women and food. And when we saw all of those images, the Aunt Mamas and the uh, Uncle Ben's come down, then the question on my mind is, what do we replace it with? Um, so uh, Queen Mothers is a statement. It is it's a statement that says, you know, no matter who you are, don't, you don't have to be this loom, like this big figure and, you know, change black history. You're a queen. Um, and then there's a certain stage you get to queen mother status, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, but um, no matter who you are and this thing called fried chicken, which is used against us, mm-hmm. uh, you can be holding it and we still should revere you as a queen within our community. So mm-hmm. I don't really have that on a, on a postcard yet, but that's, that's what's informing the name Queen Mothers. That is beautiful. That's awesome, man. Yeah, like, but, you, but you're right. Like that needs to be. That needs to find its way to that postcard. It needs to be yeah. like, on the wall to really just like explain that. Mm-hmm. All right. Did you want to ask the next one? Yeah, I mean, I think the next question is just you know going back to growing up. What is one of your strongest food memories, and how is it influencing your work today with Queen Mothers? Um, what is one of my strongest food memories so there's so many and i'm trying to go deep 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 into the young 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 um so one of my missions is to get us back to that 
table, that family reunion, that Sunday gathering. Um, and because I feel like I know within my family to be transparent and like honest, we don't do it as much as we used to. And I think we took it for granted um, because it wasn't about the food. It was about, I, I think, you know, we, we misunderstood what was going on there. At least let me speak for me. My therapist said, make eye statements. Yeah. Uh, I, I misunderstood what actually was happening. So when I go back, one of the strongest food memories is, you know, the family reunion down in Tappahannock, Virginia, right? Where, um, again, my grandfather may have gone out in the boat and caught some fish. And like my mother would say, you know, they, they come they come back lying off the boat trip, all the men lying about how big the fish was that they got gone. But he's frying up some spots, some croakers in a pan. Um, you know, my grandmother... Who actually was a great cook, but we had this black-owned uh, KFC, and KFC was 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 uh, you know such a treat because we never had it. So sometimes when 20, 40, 50 people would come over, my grandmother wasn't cooking no fried chicken for fifty. Right, right, right fifty. <laughs> right, so we would she would go down to um uh to to Mr. Dawson, I believe his name. He he was a franchise owner of this KFC, and she would get a big old batch of uh, fried chicken. My aunt Claudine. She would have her beer, no matter what it was. It would PB or something cheap and cold, uh, mm-hmm. smoking a cigarette, eating crabs. She could find her by the table where the crabs and the beer was, and she was a cigarette smoker. Um, and, and 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 I just remember and getting ready for dinner and people coming in and string beans right there. And we were Muslim, so you know they better not have no pork in them or try to feed my kids. <laughs> Uh, so and I shouldn't have been eating them crabs, but, um, uh, so, so it, it's not really, I say all that to say one of my strongest food memories are just all of those things that were going on playing Scrabble with my, um, with my cousin Robert, who was a, like an uncle to me, who still is, uh, that that's, that's the strongest thing. The food is great. I mean, the food is excellent, but it's what the foundation of it. So what really, really is going to stick out to me for, for forever, probably. Yes, I love that. I can see that as you kind of laid it out, like visually seeing that. And you're right. Just, you know, I think a lot of us take for granted those family moments and, you know, those community, you know, we, it was communion. You know, those Sunday mm-hmm. dinners was communion. Um, and I think the same. Our, our family used to always get together at my great grandmother's house and have big Sunday dinners and, you know, we don't do that anymore. Now it's like sit in front of the television, you know, and, and eat your food. But there was something that was special and magical to it because there was also the sharing of stories, the sharing of legacy, you know, passing things down in those moments that we probably just don't think about now that like there was more than just the food that was happening. So that's really special. And I think you're right. It's something that, you know, we're all having to start to look at, you know, just in my family, I could say, you know, at the beginning, really in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, um, we lost uh, the last member of my family or my mother's mm. from my grandmother's mm. generation. And so, you know, that was something that really hit that like now, you know, your parents are now, the oldest people in the family, you know, mm-hmm. don't have the, the grandparents anymore. They don't have the great grandparents anymore. And mm-hmm. for like my generation, my sisters, my, my cousins and things like that, we're having to start to like kind of renegotiate on our own, you know, what is this going to look like moving forward? Because the people mm-hmm. who used to do it, they're either not here or they can't do it anymore. You know, mm-hmm. so 
how are we going to gather? You know, how are we going to, to pull together to continue this family thing? And on, and on what terms are we going to want to do it? Right. Because now it was it was always easy growing up because in Philly and I don't know, maybe maybe Virginia is the same, but in Philly, everybody is around the corner. And when we say around the corner, it is literally around the corner in the same 10 minutes. I could get to my my grandmother, my aunt, you know, a couple of my dad's relatives, you know, cousins, brothers, sisters, like everybody was was literally 10 minutes away. And yeah. now, you know, some of us, like we're up in who knows where in New York, you know, I got cousins in, in Texas, I got cousins in Florida, I got people, so a lot of us are still in Philly, but a lot of us are, are in a lot of different places now. So it really is about how do we pull this together? So maybe we are moving more towards sort of a family reunion kind of scenario. And at the same time, my mother has discovered like a thousand new, you know, cousins on Facebook through Ancestry and stuff like that. And we're like, well, well who are these people? We got to vet that and all yeah. that madness. So, but it, yeah. it's good to have something that kind of, that brings us back to mind of those things and to do it through, you know, um, a medium like, not just fried chicken sandwiches, but the but fast food, like the idea of, of fast food in a way that it's always been bad for us. It's always been something even that's been used against us. But you know, to, to take in, as you said, reframe it, recast it in this way that kind of brings us back to the, the idea of the table and the idea of, of spending time and this food as a basis for communication is a, is a very powerful intervention. And in like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's so much narrative in your work, Rock. Like, you know, when you kind of started out as a chef, can you talk about that journey for you? Was it something that, I mean, some people start out as a chef or in cook and just in the field of cooking and their families are kind of like, I don't know that they they may not be as supportive or, um, you know, or some families are excited about it. Was that culinary journey, what was that culinary journey sort of like for you and how did you kind of begin? Um, well, I love, I, you said food is a, a, a tool of communication or is it what did you say i'm sorry uh, it was just sort of like using food as a basis of communication basis food is a basis for communication that is that's that's I, I, that is heavy to me um so my journey i'm sorry uh so i i you know originally i wanted to be a comedian right you know one of these days I'm like, yeah i i was i was a great class clown i would i wouldn't call myself a clown my teachers probably would have but i was a great uh, classroom entertainer, and uh, I wanted to make a career out of it. Wow. <laughs> you know, I grew up in the, you know, I was when I was 13, it was like late 80s. So, you know, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, like Raw Delirious, Martin Lawrence, you know, Def Jam was about to come on the scene. Um, Dolomite, I used to play Dolomite tapes. Uh-huh. And just the comedy, I in Living Color, like in the 90s. So, I, I, you know, I grew up in the middle of all of that, and I knew, you know, it was a survival tool for much for much of my middle and high school existence, right? If you didn't crack back, it was going to be a lot of, you know, pretty, like you're walking around with your head down. So right. I, that was my number, And that was one of the only things I had. I didn't have any money, right? I wasn't like the other guys. Um, so the, the reason why I say that is because I always saw myself as like an entertainer. And um, in the eighth grade, uh, I got introduced to uh, home economics. And my lovely, uh, sweet uh, home economics teacher, Ms. Hill, um, really guided me, not in the direction of to, for it to be uh, professional, for me to do it as a profession, but it was just, um, she, you know, she helped me make lasagna. And that was the first time that 
I took it home and uh, people loved it. And I couldn't believe I, mean, I was fancy. You know, I was a kid. <laughs> we lived in, in, the, in the Alexandria projects and I'm like, I'm making something super fancy, you know? And uh, my mom actually went out to the store the next or over the next couple of weeks and bought me the ingredients so I could make and sell lasagnas out of the house. Oh. Um, yeah, so she really fostered my desire to be, uh, you know, to cook professionally or to do, to explore it at least. Um, and then, you know, she she fostered or she she spurred my uh, entrepreneurship, right? So um, that was her. And then I knew I was going to college. My mom's a college graduate. My, my grandmother was an educator and a college graduate. So I just knew I was going to continue that part of our, our family. And then I, you know, but there was no college for comedians. So I was like, okay, I might, I might as well cook. Uh, and uh, I took it up. And it was something I was good at, right? I wasn't a great student. Um, it like, you know, in, in the sort of the, the box that students are put in in school. I wasn't like a phenomenal student. But in culinary arts, uh, I, I shined. It was something I, I, I loved to do. And... You know, I really looked up to my, my chef in high school is this, this white dude, his name's Chef John Dorney. He, he ended up becoming a mentor of mine. Yeah, like this Chef Boyardee mustache. <laughs> and we, you know, we had our clashes, you know, but um, he, he, he loved on me uh, and, and really uh, mentored me. And uh, so I wanted to be, you know, so I, I wanted to go in the direction that he went in. And um, every, every step along the way, it would, I had people around me that, and mind you, early in the early nineties, I graduated in ninety four. This was when the Food Networks, like Emerald, you know, Julia Child and Martin Yan were already on PBS. But this was when you could see it start to peak out and emerge as like a thing bigger than it was in years past. Mm. So there was that, like, oh, you can actually make a career, a, like a really nice career. I was right on the edge of that. So. Um, yeah, that was sort of the end. Then I went on to, to college, and, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, wow. Yeah, well, that sounds so, like, like you said, it got fostered also by your mother yeah. really nurturing that talent that she that you brought that home, and then she supported it, and that yeah. that's really fantastic. And I loved it from the, from the jump. She was like, oh, this is, we can do this. Like, this, she wanted you to know that this was something yeah. that you could actually use to provide for yourself and something that you could actually, that other people would want. So, I mean, like, that's one of the, the huge valuations. Like, you come back with something and, you know, it's it's one thing. It's great to get the love and support from your family because, you know, that we can't take that for granted because sometimes it's not there. But when it is there, even, you're kind of like, okay, but my mom likes it. You know, that's great. Like, she's proud of me that I did something. But when, when the next step to that is to go, oh, I'm going to show you everybody likes this. I'm going to show you that this is something that, that – the whole neighborhood, that everybody who touches it, everybody who comes in contact with it, they're going to value this the way that I value it, right? So that, I mean, that had to have been like a huge confidence boost at that point. I mean, just with your first dish. Yeah, it was, I mean, I again, you don't recognize these things because they just come off as normal, right? You lived in the south side of Alexandria. It was public housing. You know, I, I, I ended up selling another thing out of my house, like these tuna balls. She helped me at. Like when we went to church, um, she would find people to, you know, buy my food or, mm. you know, the, the it, it, so it was just normal. I just took it for like, it was just the way it was. And I didn't realize, I didn't realize now what was going on. That was, there was a push and a pull going on there, mm. right? There was a support system 
that um, not everybody has or, or you don't have access to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll tell you this, my, my, my grandfather, my, her, her, her father had a restaurant for 27 years. Oh. And she, she said, I knew, but I, I, when I, I remember as an adult asking her, I was like, I didn't know that. She was like, of course you knew. <laughs> I had, I promise they, they left that out, but uh, he, he sold it. Um, but it was called the Harris Grill. It was uh, listed in the Green Book, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of history there. But but that informed that that helps me understand that selling food and being like a cornerstone in the community as a food and drink place is not foreign. As a matter of fact, it supported our family for many years. So yeah. it was just like, oh, of course, he's a chef. Right. right and just, right, it's a part right. of a legacy. And that that's so funny because family does that all the time. We people do the same, you know, in our family, they, these stories slip out of like someone used to do design or Brian's really into martial arts. And they're like, oh, yeah, your uncle was really into that. And he's like, why you never told me right. this? Like, I'm always, you know, everybody's always saying how different I am. And then you tell me like there was someone in the family who did this. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I thought you knew. We're like, no, like we need to. We talk all the time about how family, especially Black folks, we need to share more stories and realize that our stories have so much value. Because I think a lot of times the older generation thinks we won't care. And it's like, no, we, we do care. We want to hear these things. It helps us better understand ourselves and some things that may have been our interest that we're realizing like it's part of a legacy of the family, not something just sort of popped up out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. My watch is started to bother you the other day uh, for the first time, and Danny gloves on the screen. My mother's sitting there. She's she's what she's like. Yeah, so I, I told you I, I um, had dinner with Danny Glover. I'm just like, Oz, no. Um, <laughs> and she's like, Yeah, I remember. No, I'm pretty sure I would have remembered. My mom had dinner with. Like we're not that family where celebrities just flowing in and out. Uh, but I feel like it's, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And and that's where, you know, things like what you all are doing um, and just capturing these stories uh, are really important. And we can do this on our own. It doesn't have to be, you know, people think podcasts need to be this big old. A podcast is just an audio recording. It can go and live somewhere forever and nobody has to push play. But I promise you, this is the way I try to if I could ask my grandfather or if I could get my grandfather's thoughts on a random Wednesday night, right? Uh, Martin Luther King just got, you know, the anniversary of his assassination uh, was just on Monday, right? Yeah. So if I could press play on a on an audio recording of what my grandparents were doing that day or thought around that week or that month or that year, yeah. I guarantee 99.9% of the people would love to know because this is what the question we're asking the elders like, where were you? Right. Uh, and it don't have to be that deep. It doesn't have to be that, you know, something that, that, that impactful. It could just be in general, like, Oh, you know, what did grandma do on a Tuesday afternoon after coming from, you know, Bible study or something like that. And um, you never know how the nuggets can really, you know, those seeds can really help us uh, and grow. So I'll stop there. I can talk all day. Well, man, this is good. I mean, this is how we get this stuff out, these stories and these ideas. I mean, that's what that's what the world needs right now. It's what we all need right now. And I think you're right because it touches on so many things about like how our, you know, our, our parents and our ancestors, you know, they were, it was enforced in, in on them to devalue their own stories. 
So of course, just reflexively, they look at us and go, well, why would you care? No one's ever cared about this story. Like it's never been important. But for us, these things are vital, you know? And um, even they, um, the, the, my aunt that I said that we lost at the, the, the end of 2020, like it was right before Christmas. And I had just set up uh, that at Christmas, we're all gonna get together and I was gonna like, you know, get the phone and record and just talk to everybody about the family. And she was really like the last one who kind of like remembered all of these things, like before everybody came up to, uh, she was actually the first member of the family born in Philadelphia. So she remembered, you know, like everybody and, and, and mm. the process of everyone coming up. Um, and I unfortunately missed the chance by that much, by just about a week. We missed mm. um, but these are the things that, that we do need to know. And these are the things, you know, just because of the way, even the way in which we learn about how diverse our own experience is right because like you said i've had those conversations with with my parents and we're like okay you know you guys were around during the civil rights movement and the marches and all this other stuff and like you know what was the what was the vibes were you involved in things and they were like no we were kind of good like we were in philly and like philly was not alabama like there was we weren't doing jim crow we had you know the movies and my father grew up in the projects my mother grew up like in um her family was like the, the the second black family in this into this Jewish neighborhood that they moved into. Mm. But so they had different experiences on that level. But in terms of what we think of as the restrictiveness of that that era for black people, neither of them said they particularly felt that. Like they, it was it, it was it was a thing, but it wasn't it wasn't their Definition. direct experience in that way. So it was it's interesting just to see how much broader. Our, even our, our past and our histories are than, than we tend to think of when we've been. And uh, all right, so talking about the past and the history and still kind of moving in this trajectory, for you, you kind of stepped onto the national stage as the winner of season three of Hell's Kitchen. Right? That, yeah. was when, that was when we first encountered you. It's not when we met you, but it's when we, we were sitting there. We were cheering for you. You are our favorite chef. We were like, I hope this dude wins. Like, like this black guy has to win. Like, <laughs> like he is the best. You never know what TV is going to do, but like, but this dude is the best. We need to see him win. So, thank you. What was that like for you? Because I mean, like, we see, we like at this point, we've got a ton of reality TV competitions, and this was kind of still at the beginning, like especially as you were saying for in the culinary space. And one of the things that we don't really recognize is that at a certain point you these shows they start turning out winners every season but a mm -hmm. lot of them disappear and you never really see them again you don't find out what they're doing or anything like that because uh, mm -hmm. we realize there's, there's so much else to the show that we as viewers never really come into contact with so what was that experience like for you you know as a winner as a, a competitor uh as a, a burgeoning personality and then yeah. like sort of the aftermath of once it was done Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I, 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 it never gets old. I appreciate your vibes during the show. It uh, they, they worked. The ancestors brought a brother on home with the trophy. So, uh, and 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 uh, I appreciate it. No matter how many years have passed. Um, so it was, you know, when I first applied, I was I was working at B. Smith, and I was just ready for a change. Right, I've been at B. Smith for nine years. I'm always a big thinker, and um, B. Smith was just it was the best one, the best thing that's happened to my career. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to do something bigger, and like I told you earlier, show business, you know, comedic entertaining people was in my blood, right? So 
oh, here's reality TV. And oh, you can make a lot of money. And okay, why not? And, um, you know, I wanted, I was looking to do all of the shows. I applied for the Food Network joint, the, uh, the, 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 the Bravo joint, and then Hell's Kitchen was casting at the time. So I applied there. And um, the experience was, you know, I thought it was going to be more Hollywood than it was. Like, you know, you know, we don't know TV. And I don't know it like that. I know it more than I did before. But you think cut and action and, you know, do this again. You just think dumb things. that it, <laughs> it, And it was not that, right? It was a full-on, immersive, like, really, really hard competition. And Gordon Ramsay, and, and not just him, but the, it really was hard. It was the hardest thing professionally I had done to date. Um, almost, it's close number two to running this restaurant today. Mm. Um, it's real hard with like, ain't no camera showing up. We, we can't pay you, you know, <laughs> trying to make payroll. Ain't no, right. You know, right. Right. No producers showing up. Say, here's a check. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so it was, it was, it was really hard, but what that allowed me to do was immerse myself in the experience. Right. So you either, there, there's tons of possibilities, but on my experience with reality TV, you can sort of, uh, be mindful or try to be mindful of the gaze, the millions of people that are going to be looking at you. Or you can just say, you know what, the hell with it. I'm going to immerse myself in this experience and I'm going to give it my all because it needs my all. And uh, the editor is going to do what they're going to do anyway. Right. Uh, I was able to um, really just flow with it and stay focused. And I, I, I knew, you know, I didn't have that much vacation. Hopefully I had a job to go back to, mm. but I I had to, you know, I had some things to do. I came there to win. I didn't come there to be famous. I really came there to win. Mm. Um, and so in the aftermath, it changed everything. I mean, you know, again, this is 07, 08. So this is right pre, this is on the cusp of Obama, right? So, you know, the, uh, blackness is about to change, right? Mm. You know, for like eight months, we was in a post-racial society, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, nobody told the racist. Um, but, uh, <laughs> they didn't get the memo. But uh, uh, so, so afterward, what it did on a positive note, it gave me right. I went from you know a, a guy that had a pretty good name in DC mm -hmm. to a chef that is really uh, known as a result of that show across the globe now, right? And not in a, in the same way that Gordon Ramsay is, but I still. I still fried chicken and made crab cakes uh, for at that time, 10 million people. And that show has just accumulated and accumulated. Mm -hmm. um, so what it does, it's rock hell's kitchen. I've tried to shake it for some time. I was, you know, I wanted to be like, Oh, y'all still know me for that. I, it was dumb period. My history. But um, what it has done is given me an opportunity. And the last thing I'll say on that is that this was something that Gordon Ramsay would say all the time throughout the show. And sometimes you don't really understand things because you're just too young and inexperienced. He said, I wish I had this opportunity. I wish I had this opportunity. You guys are getting a great opportunity. And, you know, we sort of put that in the box of being a chef at your own restaurant and, and you know, making these menus and, and you know, taking your culinary, uh, you know, your sort of your culinary um, prop, like, you know, your food to another level. Mm. And that's what. And I'm going to go to Vegas and have this great restaurant. Well, you know, my season, it didn't really work out like that. Mm. But the opportunity 
the power is in, as we can see now, almost 20 years later, uh, or 15 years later, it's, it's the celebrity. It's the, that's one of the things is just the hell's kitchen winner gets me in the door. It gets, it gets to right now when, you know, I hate to talk about myself in the third person, but when chef rock from hell's kitchen says that, uh, you know, some such and such is appropriating fried chicken. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it gets a little more attention. Right. Um, and uh, so, so there are a lot of things that come along with that, but I, I've tried to use this, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, popularity, if you will, um, to, to do good, <laughs> you know, to take a superhero reference. I've tried to use the power to do good. So it really has put uh, me and um, sort of uh, my presence on a bigger platform. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's, and which is, is great because like you said, I think that, that too is not a given. That's that's not a default setting, you know. One, just like you were saying, how you approach the experience, because you do kind of get a sense of that. We kind of felt that while you were we were watching you, you know, have your, your championship run. Uh, yeah. you kind of tell when you're watching these shows who's decided to put their heads down and do the work and who is more about the interaction. And like you said, the editors do what they do and all we see is what the editors do. But it was kind of like you you get the feeling that sometimes Yes, some people edit it to look crazy. But then you also get the feeling that there are some people who are maybe giving a little bit more opportunity for that. And then there are some people where they're like, well, look, we're not going to get that shot from this person. You know, so this person is going to be one of those that's just steady. They're going all the way through. They're going to win. And then other people are going to be the drama. So it's almost like you see people, you, you can feel that the producers have assigned them roles. But then you also feel that there are some people who kind of signed up for their role. You know, right. Um, so that's cool. I mean, so now, you know, we've, we've gone from from House Kitchen to Queen. Can Mother. I give you that? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. So just just really quick. I, you're 100 percent correct. It is in my experience. Right. There's, a, there's one thing I know is that producers are different. Right. So there's culture in different shows and, and they can, these things are so different depending upon who's running the show, depending upon what the network wants. But in my experience, there's another contestant where he would go into the interview room uh, and he wouldn't say anything like he wouldn't throw anybody under. The, he wasn't controversial at all. He was, mm-hmm. And he was really, really talented. I mean, he's probably a better technically a better chef than I was, a better cook than I was. But the, here's the one thing. While I immerse myself, I understand this entertainment, bro. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you got to I'm not going to. I don't want to be anything other than myself, but I understand that these people not, we're not here just because we're great cooks. If that was the case, you wouldn't have, you know, my man, the Asian cowboy, Aaron, who rest in peace, he wonderful brother, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't care if it was all about, or the nanny who I went up against, the mm-hmm. blonde nanny, Anna Monica, <laughs> it wouldn't, she wouldn't be here if it was straight, you should have gone on Top Chef. And even right. that ain't cooking. Right. So this is, this is actually one of the benefits of being a black person in America mm. is that we've had to wear many masks and we've had to understand when to, you know, sometimes you got to wear two at the same time and, and know your audience and know the environment. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But I understood like, dude, I'm a bad man. I'm a bad leader. I'm, a, I'm, I'm great. But also you got to play this game. And if you don't play this game, these people are going to get you up out of here. Yeah. But, but, but 
lastly, you got to be, see, here's what the tech was like LeBron James. LeBron does a lot of things and they got nothing to do with basketball. Mm. Even Jordan, all of them, but you still have to, you, there's this entertainment factor or there's this thing that, that the machine wants. And some people go a little too hard, you know, when they get a machine, anything, and they don't know who they are when they finish. Yeah. But I think greatness is about, you know, if you choose to play in that arena, you got to play in that arena. Yeah. So, um, and, and I, I think, I'd love to talk to the producers, but I think I played it kind of well, you know? So, yeah. I mean, you, it seems like. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, reason that I, I'm sure people still talk about it now, and you're probably like, gosh, that was 15 years ago, is because your presence on the show is very authentic. I think that people felt connected to you and rooting for you because they felt that authenticity come through. And then I remember for Brian and I, when we met you now, it was like 10 years ago almost now, when yeah. you um, were the, the chef at our, our book opening or book launch in Washington, yeah. D.C. And, you know, we were excited. They were like, we're going to get Chef Rock. And we were like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. Like, this is going to be great. Um, and then we, we got to meet you and we were like, oh, he's a really cool guy. Like, yes. I mean, I think that that authenticity shines through and it continues now with Queen Mothers. And even though we can't eat the food, we look at the food online because and we're we really like, eat the food. <laughs> we're like, oh man, like Rock is like killing. Like this chicken sandwich looks so good. And I know you've expanded, you know, it's beyond just the chicken sandwich. Um, but you know, I the, I think the next question for us would just be like Queen Mothers. You know, um, we talked about it honoring your mom, but sort of where did it, where did this, that journey start for you? Of like, I am going to open this restaurant space, uh, and you opened it during the pandemic. You know, so yeah. how did that all come about? Talk about crazy, like <laughs> talk about what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with me, <laughs> but uh, I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. Uh, you know, I've been talking about fried chicken for years. I, obviously, I mean, I, I went on the biggest stage that I've been on still. Uh, 10 million people. Mm -hmm. I fried chicken for my last dish. Mm -hmm. for, the, for the most now and even then, the most prominent or popular, at least, chef in the world. Right? Gordon Ramsay is, there's no one that, like, he's the chef that you probably know all around the world. Right? I had the choice, and this was a conscious choice. Rock, do you want to make something that leans in the direction of your French training that, you know, of what you've seen over the last several weeks with Chef Ramsey? Do you want to lean in that direction, or do you want to do you? And doing me got me on that show. Mm. Um, and I said, I'm like, I ain't stopping here. And I'm running a restaurant right now. Like, literally, when I, when I leave this place, I'm going back to B. Smith's in Union Station, D.C., I'm going to fry chicken, I'm going to make crab cakes, I'm going to make shrimp and grits, fried green tomatoes. I'm going to do all that, biscuits, cookies, with my eyes closed. Mm. So why are you going to, you, this is the most important dinner you'll ever cook. So is it about the food? Of course, it has to be good. And he said that. You're not going to, like, we're not going to just make stuff in advance. It's my your food, my standards. So there's some things he tweaked. But um, fried chicken was one of those things where I said, you know what, I'm going to do me. Um, and so I, I say that to say it's always been really important to me because, first of all, it's so good. And Americans love fried chicken. Right. So it's an easy business decision. I'm not a vegan that a raw vegan. Right. I love raw vegans. And 
and the reason why I bring that up, it's that's a tough business. That's a tough market in the restaurant business. So the benefit, one of the benefits for me is the thing that I love is a is. I don't say it's because people make a lot of bad chicken, but it's really popular right now. So started back then. And then again, as I'm finding, I I, I used to seek out investors. I wanted people to affirm like, dude, this is a good idea. Mm. You should do it. The guy who owned the the ghost kitchen that I started out of, Mm. I actually pitched this. He's a, he's a white guy. um, And we were friends and we we did another restaurant together. Mm. And he, he hired me to be a consultant one year for his restaurant on 14th, very close to uh, where you all launched. uh, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And, I'm like, dude, you got to do, this was, this was maybe 10 or 12. I can't remember what year it was, but I was like, you got to do fried chicken. Mm. Um, he was like, what? And mind you, I'm like, I'm the consultant and, you know, the, the, the restaurant operations is a, is an older white dude. And I'm just from DC and Aaron is, you know, from Chevy Chase. These guys, you know. They're not like the normal, and this is 14th Street that is super gentrified now. It was not so much then, but I was like, dude, you got to do fried chicken. Mm. And I said, not only you got to do fried chicken, you got to do fried chickens. What do you mean? I said, you got to do like three or five because it's such, and they didn't do it. I went through this whole spiel. So nobody would do it. Mm. And I, in the back of my mind, I started to understand how important it was to our culture, which y'all talk about. But I was like, rock, when this opportunity, he calls me, he's like, yo, you want to open a ghost kitchen? You can do, you know, set, blah, blah. he's like, whatever concept you want to do. As a matter of fact, he said, you can do that fried chicken you want to do. I was like, all right. right. Um, but this was my do or die moment. Like, you've been talking about doing it. You don't need nobody else. Use your own money. And I did it. And um, it's really important for me. One, again, it's great. It's not like I just, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, a ta- I'm a pizza guy, and I said, "Oh, I want to do fried chicken because it's popular." Mm. I, I've been talking about fried chicken for years. I think I cook an incredible yard bird. Uh, <laughs> so it was really, really a simple decision for me. And this is the foundation is way more important than the flavor, mm. right? The foundation of what it represents for me, and this is the. I'm not working for nobody else. So I can say what goes up on the wall. I can tweet. I can Instagram whatever I want. And I want people to be, as I move forward in this restaurant, you didn't ask this, but it's it's not super important that everybody says it's the best fried chicken. Mm. It's really important that we I, that people understand what fried chicken means and why I chose it right now. Mm. And it's the foundation. It's the, it's the Black woman that created it. Is how it was used as a tool of economic empowerment. It was. It's how when we talk about fellowship, and how, like I said at the family reunion, how it was a centerpiece. But what's going on around it? The opportunity for, for, for communing, for, for, you know, for getting together. Where did chicken come from? Where was the flour milled? Right. Uh, um, all of that stuff is really way more important that I want people to recognize, especially Black folks. Uh, that this thing is, and it's a billion dollar industry. Mm. We do not participate in, in, in a, in a, in a significant way, right? All of the top players uh, are, are, are not black people mm. and that's fine. But the fact that we do like this, 
Mm. Right. We're not in it. And then we've also said, nah, we created that. It's it's lowbrow mm. is is astonishing. And um, so I went along with this question. I'm sorry. But no, 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 no this no, was no, very good. Yeah. 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 So, so that that's that's informing all of it. Like, let's reclaim uh, this this very good business thing right but but more important uh, has this uh, phenomenal foundation yeah, yeah. absolutely you just yeah. said you said so, so much, much and yeah we got to dig in we got to yeah. dig into all this so um let's start oh man there's just so much in here all right all right i love it i love it i love it let's do this um let's go back to to that finale right at, at hell's kitchen just the idea of saying i'm gonna go in here i'm gonna do me i'm gonna fry chicken and the reason i want to bring that up is because that feels like it's always a question within not just within these shows, but just within like the idea of who decides what qualifies as cuisine, who, who decides when you're a cook, when you're a chef, when someone, what you do has quality, right? Because we've seen shows, I can't remember which show or who, but where uh, there was a, a black woman chef and uh, the, the, one of the judges was like, you know, Italian cuisine or French cuisine or something like one of the classical cuisines. And he was like, you know what? I love it when you cook like you, but I would really love it if you would cook like me. And cause she was doing soul food, you know, what, you know, what we would, would classify as soul food. And we were just like, yo, what, is, what, what are all of the things that go into just the moment of him feeling like that was a thing to say? Like that was something that was safe to say, that that was something that was right to say, that that was something that was his right to say. Right. And that now she's in a position where, okay, well, now I have to take what I know and what I'm good at and who I am, you know, as a, as a, as a, a, a creative, as an artist, as a chef, as a person. And I need to conform it to, to these standards over here of what this other person who, who has no experience and knows nothing about what I'm doing says is good food because he gets to say, and I don't. So like what what went into that decision for you to be able to, to take that moment and go, look, I'm going to put this up against the very best in the world in front of the very best in the world. And I'm going to show you that this this is this is it. This is that thing. Yeah. You know, it's so much easier. I know you all know this. It's so easy just to be myself. Right. It, we've we've all put on masks and and that can be challenging. Right. Not it can be, you know. It's just, I remember going to some of my first like cocktail parties or black tie events. And uh, when you first do it and you're just not accustomed to, you know, the after dinner drinks, right? I grew up on E&J with Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> you know, so when someone gives you a, you know, 25 year brandy or something, you know, cognac, you're like, uh, and they warm it up. It's just like, okay, well, like the Found that you know, so it, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to do you. It's so because it's just natural. So mm -hmm. uh, I I think that for me, you know, I, I I got cast on that show. I cast twice. I interviewed twice. The first time I was in like full on chef interview mode. Mm -hmm. I had I was in New York. I traveled up there, and I just didn't feel like I did a good job. Mm -hmm. I feel like they didn't know who I was, mm -hmm. and and. Um, uh, the, the second time was I, I drove down um, to Atlanta with my wife, my two kids, and I had jeans and T-shirt. And I was just like, 
I, I don't know if they're going to like me or not, but I'm going to give them me. And I killed it and it got me on the show. So I, that was that was in the back of my mind. Then when you get there, Gordon Ramsay is Mr. Authenticity, right? He snuffs out nonsense. Mm. Uh, Sister Julia Williams, who made it, she was the Waffle House cook who made it to the top four. Mm. She, know, she know nothing about culinary arts, like mm. nothing. She's a through and through Waffle House cook. Mm. So I'm a risotto that we all had made probably a thousand times at that point. Wow. She was just, you know, I don't know how to cook rice. You know, like this is rice, like short grain rice. But the reason why she got so far is because she couldn't fake like so many other people. Mm-hmm. And and they were trying to, my man that was culinarily like better than me, they would try to be something that they weren't. Mm-hmm. And anybody, you know, Gordon Ramsay is like, he's always in food. Like dude is always in food and he understands television and there's so much pressure and there's 92 cameras around you. Mm-hmm. So they're watching you. Uh, you know, and they, they're, they're, they know what your pressure points are. They, they, you know, it's like a lab. You're like a rat, yeah. in a, you know. So the reason why I'm saying that is because um, they can see, he can see the sous chefs when you're not being real and honest. So, Rock, are you going to keep it? A hundred, as we say, mm-hmm. or are you going to try to be? What has gotten you success so far at this competition? Mm-hmm. He doesn't like fried chicken. He'll say you're not doing fried chicken, right? If he doesn't like shrimp and grits, he'll say. Now, what happens is your food, my standards. Mm-hmm. So that can be a, a method of manipulating and forming stuff into stuff that is, um, you know, unrecognizable. Right. Well, you know, and, and we do that. All chefs do it. Black chefs do it, too. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a personal call. Right. So something that was supposed to be and it gets interpreted and so-called elevated. And now it's this thing that your grandma would be like, what the hell is that? I don't, you know, those ain't the greens that I made. Oh, they were inspired by. Um, but but so, for instance, I, I wasn't going to put Gordon Ramsay wouldn't allow me to put not an ass, but like a, a drumstick. And a uh, and a thigh, a leg quarter on a plate, right in a hell's kitchen. kitchen. Um, you know, so we had the the French the breast, and you know, make sure it butchered appropriately, and take the tender off, and it, it didn't need to be eight ounces. It was probably like more four ounces, and you know, and the crab cake, the crab was flown in from somewhere. So again, my food, my flavor profile, but his standards. So it was more about technique in that instance, and at that point, to answer your question. I understood that to be the case. I can do what I want, but I do have to, it has to be excellent. Mm. It has to be excellent. So, and, and, and at the end of the day, if I lose, I would love to lose being me. I would be okay with losing being me. Mm. But if I try to do all of this stuff that I learned in culinary school and maybe seen him do, and I lost, and I've, I've been sitting in my chair like, damn, I knew I should have fried chicken. <laughs> I, I love your love of fried chicken and how you were, you know, talking about like that it's, there's an economic engine to it. And I think that that's something that we don't think about. Like, I get that when I'm like, see like a Popeye's commercial or like you said, KFC, mm-hmm. Brian's family always does KFC, you know, on Sundays. 
but we like it because, you know, like it tastes good, like you said, and it just is a part of black tradition, but there is an economics to it as well. And you tapping into that with, with Queen Mothers, that's intriguing to me. Like just hearing you talk about the business side of it. Cause I think that, you know, a lot of people, when we think about the restaurants we go to, all we're thinking about is flavor, right? That's what, that's what the customer's thinking about. It's like, is it going to be a good experience? Is it going to taste good? Especially black people. Like, mm. I don't want to go. And there are plenty of restaurants when we lived in the city that people would be like, oh, you, you felt like you should go to it because everyone was on Instagram or online. And then you talk to friends and they'd be like, yo, the food is not, not good. Like, don't go there. The menu is, is terrible. We'd be like, you know what, I'm not even going to step in there. But, you know, this economic engine that you've tapped into that also honors the legacy of Black food culture is so intriguing to me. I don't feel like I've, ever, I've heard another chef from our community speak in that way. Um, about yeah. yeah. So tell us about kind of tying those together, like bringing how chicken is sort of this like fried chicken be access this bridge between you know um, African American culinary tradition and then also this this massive business. So, so a lot comes to mind, and I, I want to. I think one of you said, or both of you said, uh, we have to. You know, you all are history um, enthusiasts or buffs, or, or, or uh, and it informs your work and. It informs all of our work, whether we like it or not. But uh, somebody told you, somebody told you something, and you know, like Brother Malcolm would say, "Who told you that? Who mm -hmm. told you that you were less than?" And I think that when I honor fried chicken, and I'm this is very touchy territory for black people and black a black chef. Right. A lot of black people don't they don't I don't get invited to some of the things that I used to get invited to. Right. Because they don't want this dude some of some fried chicken, you know, and I get the health questions. They just and I get it. The question that I have to ask, and I'm doing a lot of work on this, is who told you all of these things about fried chicken? Who told you this? So. The first thing that comes to mind when you look up. And there's scholars, there are noted scholars that say fried chicken was, the, the, the fried chicken that we know and love today was invented on American soil by more than likely uh, enslaved people, uh, more than likely a black woman. Uh, the oldest recipe that is written, or it came from some white woman that couldn't boil water um, and but her uh, cook, I forget the name right now, but the, the, the enslaved cook um, or the woman that worked for her, I, I don't want to be incorrect here, but it, all, all likelihood, she, this white woman who wrote the book did not come up with this recipe. Mm. Uh, but the scholars have noted, okay, well, where did dunking large pieces of meat or poultry in hot fat come from? Mm. There's a lot of people. You just Google it. It just says Scott, the Scots, the Scottish people, and that that method made its way, combined with the seasonings and the flour, uh, to Scottish slave owners in America and fried chicken. Yada yada yada, as Seinfeld would say, uh, fried chicken. Right? 
um, I, I asked myself this recently. Why do we just, there's not, there's literally, I looked at, and look at Scottish food. They're not known for their fried chicken and right. or, or deep fried large cuts of meat. So this was very recent because I, I would just say that, oh, the Scots. And I was like, question everything, question it all. Yeah. And so the reason why I bring that up, and I'm still questioning that, and I, I, I want to do more research on that is because we have to understand that we're in a system and we, for whatever reason, not for whatever reason, you know, history is what it is. But we were told things for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't like relying on just your information, especially when it points to you being the goat and the god of everything, right? Mm -hmm. So when so, so this is getting to the, the economic part, I promise. Yeah. So when I when I look at fried chicken, okay, well who who told us well, why is it unhealthy? Right. So when we get to that. Well, you shouldn't be consuming anything that's deep fried in large, uh, you know, that's deep fried in large quantities often. That's just not a good. Pr I don't I don't preach it. We, we're not open seven days. I, I might not ever be open for seven days. It's just not that's not what I'm trying to do is sell the most fried chicken. Right. The foundation is more important. So um, the the. So then. OK, so why do we eat so much? OK, when did we eat less? fried chicken was a celebratory thing. Mm -hmm. Talk about uh, the after church dinners. You know, when I think about, you know, a couple generations ago, it, it, grocery stores, like these supermarket things weren't a thing. Like you would slaughter the bird. You just slaughter a bird two, three nights a week, once a week. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't, it was too much work. And, and it was not economic. It wasn't, uh, you know, I did a class the other day where I talked about, you know, you know, my mama could do with a chicken, how many people she could feed. Right. You can't feed, you can't feed two black teenagers. You couldn't feed me with one big chicken uh, these days. <laughs> Forget my teenage son. So it's just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. So how did we get to, you know, people eating two, four pieces of chicken? Well, there's a lot of factors and they're not all, you know, they, they are where they are, right? We started making more food. People started eating. We're greedier than we ever been. It's yeah. cheaper for a number of reasons, et cetera, and so forth. My point that I'm trying to get at is what was this bird? And I use fried chicken, but other, we can, we're not reduced to that. I want to make that clear. This is what I use. And obviously, we're way more dynamic and multifaceted than fried chicken. But this is what I choose to use. Because if I can use the, the least thing among us, the thing that's been weaponized against us, mm -hmm. for us to you know, gain some more empowerment, then you can use... Um, and people, chefs can use the, the so-called best. Um, so, so the economics of it. So we, we didn't consume it a lot. It was a celebratory dish. Um, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of ingredients to come together. And think about, you know, I have a deep fryer, a couple of them. But think about a stove, a hearth stove. It was really hard to do, to control. You had to be a genius, a culinary genius, to fry chicken on an open fire, mm. right? And what were you doing with that fat? Where did that fat come from? It usually came from probably like the rendered fat uh, down from the hog, right? Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't vegetable oil, probably. Uh, this is my guess. And then where did it go? We weren't just dumping it in some fat out back. Mm -hmm. It was probably used for things, probably around the house, maybe to make a new, you know, fuel or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or again, this, these are things I'm just saying, but I know that our ancestors did not just use things willy nilly and they didn't waste 
anything because their survival depended upon it. Mm. So, so, so when we move forward to where we are today in, in the 2000s, and I think about, okay, how do we get to a place where chicken is the number one animal consumed, the number one meat consumed in America, and fried chicken, you, you got Chick-fil-A, KFC, uh, uh, Popeyes, you got uh, 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 Zaxby's, you got all these places. And, and I think about the, the political power, the regional power, the job power, all of the power that these companies have. And I say, this is a thing that we created, mm. right? From this celebratory thing that we created. This, nobody can dispute that. And I'll argue with anyone. Mm. A black woman created that. Mm. And then because of this awesome, really successful marketing campaign fueled by Birth of a Nation, mm. right? Where you, you weaponize fried chicken, you weaponize watermelon. Another food that is incredibly, now that's nutritious, yeah. cheap to grow, and, and healthy, and, and hydrating. So these Negroes are out here making money off of fried chicken and watermelon. They're selling to us. Mm. So we got to use that. We can't, we can't, the goal is for them to not be in power. Yeah. So they had launched this marketing campaign. And then we get to, to, to go back, I'm going back and forth. We get to today. And I look and I say, why am I trying to, you know, cook somebody else's food when this is literally in my blood? Mm. This is literally in my veins. I can do that with my eyes. Closed. I don't know why I can do it so well, probably because I've eaten it and I've seen my mom and my grandma and I've tasted it at a million restaurants. Just like other cultures can, you know, uh, can do the same thing with their food. Mm-hmm. Why on earth am I running away from it? And it baffles me. Mm. And I, I think I have some answers. I personally have some answers, of course. But part of the reason why I use fried chicken is, is my flag, so to speak, mm. is because I understand that we have to be, uh, we have to make some economic gains in this country, especially in this industry. Mm-hmm. And if I see an opportunity, people jump on trends all the time, right? Poke come up, the appropriators and the culture vultures jump on that and they open up 20 pokes in, in yeah. the city. We see, you know, smoothies. And we've seen it over the years. We see taco shops. I don't even know what it is right now. Yeah. But business people, and I met, you know, this is a society we live in. They hop on these things. Fried chicken has been popular for so long and it ain't going nowhere. No time soon. So it just makes sense. I, Steve Harvey, this is the last thing I'll say. I heard a Steve Harvey quote, you know, scrolling through Instagram mm. and Steve Harvey doing his thing. He said, if you, you know, my barber, he's the barber story, my barber, $20. I was cutting, now he'd make $3,000. He gives the whole thing. And he's like, and he says something about, if you fried chicken out your house, you need to be somewhere right now, fried chicken. I promise. This didn't inspire me, but it smacked me in the face. And I was like, bro, you got to wait on a Steve Harvey quote. Like, <laughs> Steve Harvey got to tell you to do what you do. Right. Like, I'm not that guy to get super inspired and go like, oh, it was a Steve Harvey. No, dude. It's just like, dude, you've been fried chicken for so many years. Yeah. And you got to wait on a Steve. Like, he just said it. You fried chicken better than anybody you know. Yes. Why aren't you? Yeah. And so 
So we participate. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, no, but this is cool because this is where it really starts to come full circle. And the reason why yeah. we wanted to talk to you and the reason why it, it's so important for us to kind of go through this in such detail is we know how easy it would be for someone to look at Queen Mothers and just kind of mistake it for the latest entry in this chicken sandwich wars have been going on between the big franchises for a long time. But there's something very different going on here and there's something very different being said. And it really comes back to what you had just said about, you know, being convinced to kind of move away from this thing. People saying, oh, this is lowbrow. Some people saying that. It's very similar to what we were talking about earlier with our families and their stories. And this devaluing that went on and going, oh, well, my children don't need to hear this. They don't care about this, either because it was hard for me, it was painful, or because just nobody cares. And so there's this thing that everybody has been kind of like, everybody is after, everybody wants, everybody's using it, but we're convinced that, that it's, it's low ground, whatever. So you have the, these stereotypes that for a very long time, like you said, fried chicken has been used against us. You know, it's been used as a stereotype, but like you said, it's a billion dollar industry and that billion dollars is not coming from us alone. Like, so how is it? And we, this is what we, we were talking about at the very beginning when I was saying we start to look at this, this, the stories of how these things shake out and the things that fit together and the things that don't. And one of the things that don't fit together is the idea that black people are somehow inferior because of a love of fried chicken. But everybody eats fried chicken, like literally, not just in this country, people all over the world are eating fried chicken. Like, so, so how is it that this becomes somehow a mark of inferiority for us and then you start to see like these larger things, you know, like for a long time, um, like in the, in the, especially the fifties and sixties, even in scholars in other areas, like if they would find, you know, civilizations or archeological finds of, of stone structures or, or like large buildings in, in uh, Africa, the way that they would expect to find in Europe or the Middle East, they would immediately assume that another group of people like, well, maybe the Hebrews came and they built great Zimbabwe or something like that. And that was a story for a very long time. And so, you know, we have to start to think about how we engage with, well, for one thing, you know, when we talk about representation, how we engage with even representations of ourselves that don't originate with us, mm-hmm. but then also how we hold on to our own stories and continue to be critical of the ways in which things like this are still kind of used against us. So very much like you said, it, where, where these things disappear, what are we replacing them with? If, if the image of, of fried chicken is not always like the smiling, you know, picking any black person that you could find always, even up through the 60s, you know, mm-hmm. have those things really gone away or are we simply replacing them with something else? And then looking at that through this, through the lens of, of this, this restaurant where so many things are coming together and, and even what we've seen, what we really appreciate is your, your commitment to sustainability and your commitment to transparency you know, actually putting on the, on the, the website, here's what goes into your chicken. Here's where your chicken comes from. Here's how it was raised. So that you're understanding that like, this is not a thing. If, if your chicken has been sitting in Greece for the last week before somebody throws it in the microwave, heats it up, put it on a bump you, yes, that is not going to be good for you. But there's a way of doing this where it's not like a, a death sentence in a paper bag. And so yeah. for me, and I don't even know what, what, what your plans are. For, for me, like where it comes together is, you know, looking at even this present moment with COVID and seeing how much of the impact on black communities is traceable back to issues of food justice and food deserts and these places where fast food is the only thing that's available. 
and all of the fast food say basically being designed with profit and expedience in mind rather than health and community and and the 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 pre-existing conditions that we get from being you know subjected to that you know places where you can't find a grocery store like you said you still can't find a grocery store nobody's raising birds to take out back and slaughter but mcdonald's and kfc and popeyes they're everywhere right taco bell all that stuff so the idea of of and, and elevated. So again, this goes back to your Gordon Ramsay, your food, my standards, right? The idea of an elevated concept of fast food, something that is actually good for the people, is actually, you know, raised sustainably, locally, all these other great things that people are made aware of what they're putting into their bodies, that, that yeah. takes and reclaims this legacy, this, like you said, it's not just fried chicken that started with Black people in this country, barbecue. We see the same thing starting with black people in this country. Um, so much of what is considered American cuisine now comes from enslaved chefs like you know Hercules and you know James Hemings, and and yet across the board. But this is something that we see across the board. We are foundational to the shaping of a culture, and then excise mm-hmm. from the conversation, and then taught to believe that our contribution, while we watch everyone else. <laughs> do the most with it, get the most out of it. You know, you talk about even hair, like it, it goes everywhere. Where you see all these things happening, but we're convinced that, no, we can't do chicken because that's stereotypical. We can't do chicken because that's lowbrow. It's not too lowbrow for the Colonel. <laughs> it's right. not too lowbrow, you know, it's not too lowbrow for Chick-fil-A, you know? So why is it, why is it lowbrow for us when, when it's a billion dollars for everybody else? And every single one of those people, even if they know that we're not their direct, that we're not their entire audience, they know that we're showing up in the marketing campaigns. <laughs> they know that they got, you know, the, the, the down-home Louisiana woman talking about how great her chicken is. They know that they got, you know, we're in the commercial. So all of this stuff is going on. And being able to bring this together in this, in this concept, in this place that's actually that's, that's named for your mother, inspired by your mother, drawing on this, this history and this culture and really has the opportunity to point out so much to us about yeah. who we are and what we're doing in the ways in which we are taught and conditioned to look away from ourselves, even while we're doing it, mm-hmm. is, is I think that is remarkable. And I don't know what your plans are for Quimbo, but I hope to see one. I want everywhere where I see another fast food place today, yes. I hope to see one. I hope to see it. Thank you. Well, I, I'll tell you this, Brian. You, you almost made me, it's tight in here. I almost jumped out of my seat going to church <laughs> on you. You're a preacher, brother. I love it. you. Hit, you hit it. Um, so just real quick, the, the, here's, here's one of the things that makes Queen Mothers different. So we have to, success has been defined for us. Mm. There was a time, I'm doing research and I'm not a scholar or like even a historian. What I'm, I'm locked in and I'm praying on what was important before we were interrupted. Mm. What, how, who, you, who were you, Rachman? Like, what was important? So once I have that question in front of me, mm. then the term success becomes different. Mm-hmm. So success in this country is get to the bag, do it dolo, get yours, be the best of the be- like all that stuff, yeah. right? Which 
I'm am both guy. I'm not saying don't get to the bag, whatever that is. But for me, what I'm learning is that, and it's always been in my life, God is at the center of everything. Spirituality, we, we understood that. Yeah. And and there was a certain way we did things, mm. right? Everybody ate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in, in certain like, you know, communal dinners, right? We, there, there was there was this idea that we were just a communal people, and we still are. I'm not saying we, we aren't, but the reason why I bring that part of us up is that I I pray, I believe in God. And, you know, they showed that on Hell's Kitchen. I was so proud of that. I was on my knees praying when my black mama with her black dreads mm-hmm. came on uh, that show and hugged her black son. She talked about, you know, my father's past. She talked about my black daddy. And she said she's praying for me and we cried black tears. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, that I was very proud. Black people understand what's going on. there. Not saying that nobody else does. Yeah. But that that was a moment where we can all empathize with. Um, so 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 what is so Queen Mothers is right when you do see one on every corner, it's going to be different in the sense that success is different. So when I'm buying all the sustainable stuff, the best product, what I'm also hoping that we'll do is. Why is it these other places? Why are their sandwiches six dollars? We we ask why mine is thirteen. People, black people ask me that. Not even just black people. I shouldn't even put that on my folks. People ask me that in general. Why is it the price that it is? That's not a bad question. A better question in this agricultural system is how do you think they can serve you a three dollar chicken sandwich? Yeah. Why do you, you know the price of chicken in the grocery store? Why is there's six and seven, and mine right? And there's a lot of answers behind that. None of them are necessarily wrong. But what I'm hoping is that you understand, going back to my grandmother, what informs this chicken. So we pay $15 an hour. Hands in Virginia, where the minimum wage right now is going up, it's $7.50. Mm-hmm. I share t- with everybody on staff. So sometimes they make $19, $21 an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use sustainable products, like you said about the chicken, the bread. So, so what are they using that can allow them? There's no preservative. There's nothing crazy that a fifth grader can't pronounce in this restaurant, nothing. And I stand on that because that's what my grandmother would do. Because, and not what she did was MSG. So, I'm sorry, she's an ancestor now, but, um, <laughs> you know, oh, you usually use the accent. But here, here's the point. <laughs> here's the point. Success is not just making a billion dollars for Queen Mother. Success for us is how can we build community on a culture and serve smiles. So, like I said, I'll never be open seven days selling fried chicken. That's that's my plan right now. But could we be open on Sunday to uh, foster, to, to have families come in and just sit and pray and fellowship together, to have the church lady, like, can you have a safe space where you don't have a a place to eat and fellowship and be you with your with your straight hair, with your nappy hair, with your like I don't care what it is. All we all welcome, and you can come yeah. in and be yourself. You can't. That's one thing that none of those corporations that we've named can do better than me. Can do better than us. Uh, Roland Martin said it about his show the other day. I, I'm stealing it, but I'm gonna give him credit. He said uh, they, they can't out black me when he was talking <laughs> about building show. Mm. So 
I think that it's important. I want to make, I want, my stores will be million dollar stores very soon. Mm. But the most, the highest thing is how am I building community? What are we doing? How are we educating our folks? I just had a brother who used to work with me um, when he was uh, younger. He went to jail, came home, Mm. and I I found out what he went to jail for. But my mentor who used to work for as well called me and said he needs a job. Mm. His community. I, there's no need for me to, we had a talk, of course, mm-hmm. but okay, you, you start tomorrow. Yeah. And that ain't going to always work. And that, that's not the only thing to be done. There's a, you know, I need to love on that young brother and I need to support him. But part of it is, you know, Queen Mother said, you can always come home. So having these cornerstone businesses mm-hmm. that you can walk, it's like the black barbershop, you can walk in and, 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 and not immediately get the police called on you or somebody looking at you sideways. Uh, because you are a certain way. So that's the successful coin. We, we could make a million and we're going to be a billion dollar company, God willing, in, mm-hmm. in several years. But when I look at success and being on every corner, it is completely different than uh, what corporate America or these other restaurants that we've talked about describe success. And nothing's wrong with what they're doing. That's cool. But when I think about us before we got interrupted, I got to say, you know, what would we have done uh, several, or what would your great grandmother want you to do with this restaurant? Right. That was awesome. Everything you said was awesome. I yes. swear we could talk to you for like another, you know, hour another or two. two hours. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. I know I we've get, all got to get, get ready to run, but you know, that I want to say like one, yes, I want to see a queen mother's, you know, in, in our community, I want to see it all over and I also want you to write a book (laughs) like think about that you know because the way that you talk about our food and the history and how you're investigating and interrogating it is so important it's a missing component there are a lot of great um, food books out there uh, black culinary books but there aren't any that are really looking at that hist- from, from a historical standpoint. So think about it, because I feel like as you were talking, I was like, I would love to read this book. Yeah. So- I'm going to tell you, you actually, you just, you just gave the name of your own book before we were interrupted. Mm. Please do that before we were interrupted. Mm. And so many other things, so many other things. And what you're touching mm-hmm. on is exactly what for us is at the heart of Afro Sheep, what we always talk about the african-american dream and the american dream are not the same thing the american dream is i make it the african-american dream is we make it mm-hmm. if we don't make it then i'm not safe so we however we want to approach it like we always we have to build for each other yes so the more we do that and seeing you do that is inspiring for us we love it and i want to give you the last word before we sign off i need to hear you say it again because I, I didn't i missed it it was uh Something was a uh, uh, serving food, empowering community, uh, something about culture. And please tell me that that's on the wall at Queen Mother's. <laughs> so it's not on this wall because it's a shared wall. But when I move into my own, it's going to be the blackest space you ever seen. One of the blacks. Uh, uh, it is our three core tenets. It's uh, uh, serving smiles, building community and honoring culture. Right. And, you know, people say we're in a restaurant business. I'm in the people business. Mm-hmm. Right? Food is my, is my opportunity. But none of that has to do with food. Serving smiles, honoring culture, building community. We ain't talking ingredients. So those are the three core tenets. Yep. I appreciate that. Last word. 
Like, Love amen. it. This was so great to talk with you. I'm so glad we got to talk to you. We need to do Thank it. You. I remember when we used to hang out and when you first told us about this concept and that Queen Mothers was coming. And uh, even when we had the conversation about the cheese and the bacon and all that, and putting yeah. all the chicken sandwiches. But yeah, man, it's amazing to see what you've done. Love the concept. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that everybody who can hear it does hear it. I appreciate everything that you all are doing. Um, you're, you're inspiring on many levels. I'm so glad to see you doing both. You're both doing well. And I hope one day it is uh, to, to, to work with you all because I, I am many things, but a designer I am not. <laughs> it'll happen. God yeah. always yeah. makes it happen. It's like, it'll happen at the right time. It's yeah. going to happen. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Thank y'all. Appreciate you so much.